Rocky Peak. It is so great to be with you today. Whether you're, whether you're tuning in locally with us or you're coming from around the world, we're just so glad that you've jo- chosen to, uh, to enjoy this day with us as we celebrate the resurrection together. My name's Michael. I'm one of the pastors here. And if it's your very first time, special welcome to you. Uh, we're so glad that you've chosen to spend your Easter weekend with us. Right now, we're going to go into our time of teaching. And so uh, right there, as Ray said, if you haven't done already, up above on the the green bar, you've got the area to download that uh, message note sheet. And if you haven't done that already, encourage you to do that because we'll be using it a lot. So if you're ready to go, uh, I'm ready to go. So let's pray and jump in. Father, we are so thankful to be here on this weekend to celebrate the life, the death, and the resurrection of your son. And Father, we just pray for uh, uh, the Holy Spirit just his covering right now over this place, over this time, uh, over every kitchen, over every living room, over every car, every, every park where this, this, uh, this message is being watched. We pray that you would come and engage us, and that as you did so long ago on that first Easter day, that you would open our eyes to see the reality of who you are and the reality of your resurrection and what it means for our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Well, our story starts today uh, in a cool spring afternoon in the mountains. And uh, they're, they're walking home. They're leaving the city, the capital, and they're heading out seven miles to their village where they've grown up, uh, just seven miles away. And uh, honestly, uh, they're not talking much. They are deep in thought. They're self-absorbed. The landscape's going by. The familiar sights of, and sounds of the road that they're traveling, they're not even paying much attention to as their minds continue to drift back on the events, the tragic events of the last few days. And so as they're going lost in thought from time to time, they'll come out of themselves and they'll engage with one another. And they'll begin to process these events in the last few days and what they mean and what their future will be like in light of them. And so as they're moving along, they're so deep in thought and deep in conversation. Maybe that's why that they don't realize that someone is gaining on them from behind. There's someone who is slowly catching up from the rear. Someone who is about to overtake them. And to ask them a question and to engage them in conversation, which is going to change the entire course of their lives. Well, today is Easter weekend. 2020, and what a crazy time it is, is it not? Uh, Who would have ever guessed, uh, who could have ever predicted even a year ago that today it would be illegal for us to meet, that we would not be able to meet, that they would be in the midst of a crisis that is gripping uh, not only our country, but the whole world. And yet here we are. And in spite of that, on this weekend, We have followers of Jesus around the globe who are banding together, different times, different places, often just online, um, celebrating the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. 
And what I wanna do today as we uh, kick off this time together is I want us to go back in time. I want us to go back to that very first day, that very first day when the body of Jesus was first reported as missing. And what I want to do is go back to one of my favorite accounts of that first day. This is, this is written of, uh, by a man named Luke. He was an early convert to Christianity. Uh, he was not a Jew. He was a Gentile. Um, and he writes an account of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And I'd like to go back to his particular version of what happened on that very first day when the body of Jesus was first reported as missing. And so there on your note sheet, you have a section called Missing the First Day. And if you look there, you'll see that, that what Luke does is he describes this first day that the body of Jesus was reported as missing. What he does is he gives us three short stories, three what I'm calling vignettes, uh, three key events that happened that day. Of all the three that he could have chosen, um, he chose these three to share the message of what happened on that very first day. And so if you have your Bibles, if you have your apps, what I'd like you to do is open up to Luke chapter 24. Now, if you don't have your Bible, you don't have your apps, that's fine because on your note sheet and also on the screens, we're gonna be putting the passage there, but it's always more effective uh, if you're studying out of your own Bible, marking it up, highlighting things as we go along. And so if you look at that first vignette there under missing the first day, we have the, the vignette of the missing body. And so if you have your Bibles, let's open up to Luke chapter 24 and jump in. What we're going to be doing today is we're actually going to be walking through this entire chapter together, looking at all three vignettes, and then coming back and making a couple key observations uh, that flow out of this, uh, these three stories. And so uh, Luke starts off and he says, on the very first day of the week, very early in the morning, so it's very uh, kind of like dawn, uh, the women, and he'll, he'll identify who these women are, some of them later, the women, they take the spices they had prepared and they went to the tomb. And so they're, they're going to uh, anoint the body, the corpse of Jesus. But when they get there, they find out that the stone had been rolled away from the tomb. The big st a circular stone that would be kind of uh, covering the face of the tomb has been rolled away. And so they're, gonna, they're going to kneel down and they're gonna enter into this tomb and when they entered, uh, they did not find the body. The tomb was uh, empty. And so while they're wondering about that, you know, who took the body? Where do they take the body? Why do they take the body? Uh, suddenly these two men show up in the tomb and uh, their, uh, their clothes are gleaming like lightning and they stood beside them. And of course, they're freaking out. It's freaky enough to be in a tomb, right? But when you have two people with like bright clothes on, that's really freaky in a tomb. And so in their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why are you looking for the living amongst the dead? In other words, why are you looking for someone who's alive in a graveyard? And they said, he's not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, up in the north of the country. He said, this is what Jesus had told them, that the Son of Man, which is his favorite name for himself, must be delivered over to the hands of sinners and be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And so in the months preceding the arrest and execution of Jesus, he had told his followers several times that he was going to Jerusalem, he's going to be arrested, beaten, and then executed. 
Um, but this was so far outside of their paradigm. There was nothing inside the paradigm of a first century Jew that would ever expect the Messiah to be killed, let alone rise from the dead. And so uh, even though he has told them this several times, uh, they've not really understood it. In fact, they, you know, Jesus would often teach in highly symbolic language. And so uh, they just assume that he, whatever he meant, they don't, they're not following it, but it, it wasn't literal. And so the angels are reminding them of this. And so when they did, in verse eight, it says, then they remembered his word. So it starts coming back, but of course the women don't understand kind of what it means, but the words are coming back. And so when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the others. And so, of course, the 12 disciples of Jesus, one of them, Judas, had betrayed Jesus on Thursday night, and then he had committed suicide on Friday. And so the 12 are now 11. But notice that there's also many other disciples there with them, and that'll become important later on. And so, uh, so they come back, they tell, they tell all the men uh, what's happened, and now, uh, now Luke is going to give us the names of three of the women. There's many women that will go to the tomb, many more than three, but he's going to give us three of the more famous ones. So it was Mary Magdalene, we know about her, uh, Joanna, and then Mary, the mother of James, and the others who were with them, who told the men, the apostles, uh, told, told this to the apostles, but they didn't believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Now, I want you to catch this. The initial, the initial news about the resurrection of Jesus when the women came back, the initial response was one of total skepticism. And this makes total sense because like I said before, there was nothing in the mindset, the worldview, the paradigm of a first century Jew to suggest that a Messiah could ever lose. If a Messiah is arrested and executed, all that proves is that he wasn't the Messiah. You've banked on the wrong person, let alone any concept of a resurrection. So their initial response of all the followers of Jesus on that first morning when they were told this, their initial response was skepticism. However, one of the disciples, the leader of the band, his name is Peter, uh, Peter had denied Jesus on Thursday night three times, uh, Thursday night, early Friday morning. And, and so uh, he has been devastated. It's the worst weekend of his life. And so uh, he decides to at least go to the tomb and check out their story about the, the empty tomb. Whatever's going on with the angels, this whole, they're not buying that. Uh, maybe these women are emotional, they're gullible, not naive, whatever. We know, we know he's not alive, but let's go and at least find out if the tomb is actually empty. And so in verse uh, 12, so Peter, however, gets up, he runs to the tomb, and bending over, he saw the strips of linen by themselves. And so uh, they had wrapped the body, the corpse of Jesus, in linen, and mysteriously, those are all taken off and just lying there, which is really weird. If you're gonna steal the body or move the body, why would you strip it? You carry a naked guy with you. Doesn't make any sense. So he looks over, he sees the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened, right? So he's not, not sure what's happened, who's taken the body, why it's been taken, where it's been taken, he doesn't know. But we start the day with all of the disciples being skeptics, right? That's vignette number one. Now, vignette number two. Vignette number two is the two travelers. And for this vignette, we go back to the story we started the day with about these two men who leave a major city 
on a spring afternoon in the mountains, cool spring afternoon, they head out, they're, lost, they're deep in thought, they're lost in thought. From time to time, they come out of themselves into conversation, trying to make sense of the events, the tragic events of the last few days. And while they're walking along, maybe it's because they're, they're so into them, them themselves or so into the conversation, but that all of a sudden, they are joined by a third man, a, a stranger, a traveler who catches up with them from behind and asks them a question, engages them in conversation. So this is a story that flows out of the second vignette that we're about to read. So let's see what happens. So we pick it up at verse 13. So on the same day, two of them, so these were two of the men who were there in the morning when the women came back and told them the story about the empty tomb. So these are two of the skeptics. It's now Sunday afternoon, so we're jumping ahead in time. And they're going to a village called Emmaus. It's about seven miles outside of Jerusalem. And so they're talking with each other about everything that's happened. So remember, it's Passover week. Hundreds of thousands of pilgrims from around the world have piled into Jerusalem. This is the week that started with Jesus riding into the city on a donkey uh, to the praise of many of the crowds. It's a, it's a week that ended with his arrest and execution. They're devastated. As we're going to see, these two men were convinced as the disciples of Jesus that he was the long-promised Messiah of Israel and that he was coming to rescue them and unleash the power, his supernatural power, the power that had raised the dead, calmed the seas, fed the thousands. He was gonna unleash that power on Rome and bring in the long-promised kingdom of God that had been promised for hundreds of years by the prophets of Israel. But of course, then when he's arrested and executed, all that hope went up in smoke. They're devastated. Their futures are up in the air. They're trying to make sense of that. And on top of that, the women have come with this really weird report of an empty tomb and a crazy vision. Peter's verified the tomb is empty, and they're trying to process all that and make sense of their lives. And so it says, verse 14, they were talking with each other about everything that's happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. Now we see this often in the resurrection accounts is that people don't always first recognize Jesus. Apparently his new body is similar to the old one, but uh, also different. And so uh, they don't recognize him. And so he asks them, he's just going to play along like he's sort of a, a Jewish pilgrim in town, doesn't know what's going on. And he says, what are you discussing as you walk along? And so they, they stood still. This just stopped them in their tracks. They can't believe there's anyone in Jerusalem who doesn't know what's going on. This information about Jesus, it's front page news. It's all over social media. It's, on, it's, it like, it's the talk of the town, right? They can't believe anyone doesn't know what's going on. And so they stood there, they're, they're, uh, they're, they're standing there, their faces are downcast, they're depressed. And uh, one of them, his name was Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened these last few days? Like, like where have you been? And he just continues to play along, and he says, well, what things? And they said, well, it's about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet. He was powerful in word and deed before God. In other words, he, he was powerful teaching and powerful in his miracles uh, before God and all the people. But our leaders, the chief priests, the top priests, and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. And we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem or rescue Israel. 
And what is more, it's on the third day since it took place. And on top of that, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb this morning. They couldn't find his body. The body's missing. And they came and told us they'd seen some sort of vision of angels who said he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and they found it just as the woman had said, but they didn't see Jesus. And so Jesus, he's now heard as much as he needs to hear. And frankly, he's a little shocked because he gets it. They may not have seen all this coming, but, but after he had told them so many times, predicted his death and resurrection, after the women had come back with a vision of the angels, after the empty tomb, he's thinking like they should, the truth should be beginning to break in on them. And so he's going to challenge them. And he says in verse 25, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. He said, didn't the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Like you, you only read the part about him entering his glory, you missed the whole part about his suffering. And so now he's gonna do a Bible study with them. And he says, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And so he, he begins to unpack the Hebrew scriptures, the story of Israel, the promises to the patriarchs, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, the story of Israel, the redemption, the Passover, all the sacrifices for the atonement of sins, all the promises, the prophecies about the coming of the Messiah, the one who would suffer like a suffering servant in Isaiah 53 and, and others before coming in his glory. And he begins to take them on this kind of story of Israel, this, this spiritual journey through the Bible. And as he does, something supernatural begins to happen in them. They had started the day as skeptics. When Jesus approached them on the road, they were skeptics. They thought that he was the Messiah, but we were wrong. They started with skeptics, but as Jesus began to open up the scriptures and began to spin a different narrative with the same facts, something began to happen in them. The predictions of Jesus, the empty tomb, the vision of angels, the, the statement that he was alive, and now the story of prophecy being fulfilled. Something has happened. They're beginning to move from being a skeptic to a seeker. Something is happening, and could it be? They started the journey with, there's no way, this is nonsense, but as Jesus is unpacking the word, they're moving from skeptic to seeker, could it be? In fact, later they will describe that while Jesus was talking with them on the road and unpacking the word, they said it was like their, their hearts, it was like a fire was being lit inside of them. And so at this point, they've arrived now at the village of Emmaus. It's the sun's going down, it's dark, and Jesus pretends like he's about to move on like he's going to continue going, but they don't want him to go. Something is happening in them. Notice, they don't know that he's Jesus yet. They, they're not convinced. They, they don't know the resurrection has happened yet, but something is happening. Something is, the evidence is mounting. Something is happening, and they don't want him to go. They want to learn more, and so they they persuade him, why don't you stay with us? Ha share a meal with us, spend the night with us. It's not safe out there, kind of just, 
they don't want him to go. And so in verse 28, as they approached the village to where they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. He pretended like he was going to keep going. But they urged him strongly, no, stay with us, for it's nearly evening, the day's almost over, and so he went to stay. And once they're having dinner, something amazing happens. When he was at table with them, they're sharing a dinner, he takes the bread and he gives thanks and he breaks it and he gives it to them. And at that moment, their eyes were opened and they recognized who he was. It all came together. All the evidence came together as he opened their eyes that this was actually true. The resurrection was real. And when that happened, he disappeared from their sight. And they said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scripture? See, they, they, didn't, know, they, they didn't know that he was uh, alive yet. They didn't know it was Jesus yet. Um, but what they knew uh, is that something was happening. The evidence was beginning to mount. They had moved from skeptic to seeker. And when they invited him in, they moved from seeker to certainty. And so now they feel like, we gotta get back and let everyone know. And so even though it's late at night, they pack it up seven miles, they head back to Jerusalem. They gotta let people know that the women were right, that Jesus is alive, that the story is true. But it turns out Jesus had been very active during the day. And earlier in the day, after they had left, Jesus had actually met with Peter. And Peter had come back to the 11 and said, it's true, Jesus is alive. And so when they get back and they're gonna tell him, hey, you gotta hear from I mean, we just saw Jesus. They're like, yeah, we know. We, we've heard he's alive. Peter's told us. And so they returned in verse 33. They, um, they got up and they returned at once to Jerusalem, the two. They found the 11 and those with them assembled together. And, and but the, the 11 spoke first and they said, it's true. The Lord has risen. And he's appeared to Simon, which is another name for Peter. And so then the two they told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized when he broke the bread. And so now we move for the end of the second vignette, right? As we've watched these skeptics um, move from skeptics to seekers to certainty. And now we come to the grand finale, the third and final vignette that Luke wants to share with us. And so it's there on your note sheet, the surprise visit. And so while they were still talking about this, so the two are there, the 11 are there, others are there, they're talking about this, they're behind, remember, locked doors for fear of the authorities. And all of a sudden, Jesus is there, and he stood beside them, and he says to them, shalom, peace be to you. And it's a good thing he said that, because they were scared to death. In spite of the fact that the 11 had begun to buy in that Jesus was really alive, their paradigm didn't still allow for this. And so when someone shows up behind locked doors, that's impossible. The only thing in their par paradigm that can explain that is something paranormal. So the equivalent you might think of a seance or something like that when a, when a spirit comes and manifests. And so Jesus knows this, it scares them to death, and he knows that they're gonna need some hard evidence. And so he's very gentle with them. And it says in verse 37, they were startled and frightened thinking they saw a ghost. And he said to them, 
why are you troubled? And catch this, why do doubts rise in your mind? They just said that they had come to a place to believe that Jesus was risen, and yet when they actually see him, doubts are rising. And so Jesus wants to convince them of two things. The first thing is that it's really him. And second thing is that he has a real body. He's not just a spirit. This is not like a, like a spiritual resurrection. This is not a vision. He's got a real body. You can touch him. Uh, he's the same person. And so he begins going through a series of convincing proofs, one after another. And so he starts off and he says in 39, look at my hands and my feet. And of course, they still have the scars from the crucifixion, from the nails. He says, it's I myself. And so he, he says, it's really me. But secondly, he says, touch me and see. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones, as you see I have. So he invites them to, to touch him, to feel his body. It's hard, it's physical, it's real, it's tangible, it's a real body. This is not a spiritual resurrection, this is a physical resurrection. And so when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still didn't believe it, but now because of joy and amazement, he gives them the, the kind of the coup de grace. He says, do you have anything here to eat? I mean, obviously spirits can't eat. And he said they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it in their presence. And so now he needs them to understand not only has he really risen from the dead, but also why he had to suffer, why he had to die, why this is part of the larger narrative, the story of Israel, the story of God that the Bible's telling. And so he says, this is what I told you, verse 44, while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, in the prophets, in the Psalms, or it's the whole Hebrew scriptures. And so he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Notice that. He opened their minds, just like he opened the eyes of the two disciples at dinner in Emmaus. He now opens their minds so they can see what was there hidden in plain view all along. And he told them, this is what is written, that the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And then catch us, here's why. And repentance for forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, starting right here in Jerusalem. And so Jesus wants them to understand not only that he did die and rise, but why he had to die. And that he said, I, I had to die for the forgiveness of sin so that everyone who wants to come under my leadership and truly repent, leave their old life, let me rule their life, be their Messiah, their king, that I can grant them forgiveness. But that's not all, because he goes on. And he says in verse 48, he says, listen, you are witnesses of these things. You're the eyewitnesses, you are here. But he said, I'm going to send uh, but I'm going to send you what my Father has promised. And he's talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the ancient prophets of Israel had said that when the kingdom of God came, that God would not only forgive his people of their sin, but he would pour out his spirit to come and live in them and change them from the inside out so they could be the people they are created to be, people who love God and love people. And Jesus says, so, this is why I died, and I want you to wait in Jerusalem till the promise of the Spirit comes. 
He said, but stay in this city until you've been clothed with power from on high. And now Luke's gonna jump ahead 40 days, almost a month and a half in time. And he says, so when he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, so we're now a month and a half later, 40 days later, Jesus is ready to leave for the last time. And so he leads them outside the city to an area called Bethany, just a couple miles, a mile outside of Jerusalem. And he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into the heavens. And then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continuing the temple, praising God. And it's gonna be about another 10 days before the Holy Spirit comes upon them on the day of Pentecost to fulfill the promise of Jesus. And Luke is gonna continue that story in volume two of his two-volume account, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. So we're gonna pick that up next week as we kick off a new series next week. I'll talk about that more later. But here, as we, as we go back to this very first day, first day of the resurrection, Luke says, let me share with you Uh, What happened that very first day that started with the the report, the body of Jesus was missing, who took it, where it was taken, we don't know, and what happened as he moves through these three powerful vignettes, three of, of many that he could have chosen, but three he chooses to communicate the message he wants us to understand about the resurrection of Jesus and what it means for our lives. And so what I want to do in the time that we have together today is just is to focus on two big picture life principles, important truths for us to understand about the resurrection that flow out of these three vignettes. And so there in your note sheet, you have this section that's called Missing What It Means. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I want to highlight two things that Luke wants us to understand about the resurrection of Jesus and what it means for our life. The first thing is the most obvious thing. That the first principle goes like this, that the resurrection is real. Luke wants us to understand that the resurrection of Jesus, it's not myth, it's not legend, it's real. It's historical fact. Luke lived in a day and age when the prevalent religions of the Roman Empire were built on mythology of the the Roman gods, the, the Greek gods, and people actually believed that these things had happened. And he wants him to understand that the message of Jesus, it's not myth, it's not legend, it really happened. In fact, when Luke started his, uh, when Luke started his, uh, to write his gospel, um, at the very beginning, he tells us why he wrote it. And uh, I want you to look there on your note sheet because this helps us to understand the end of the story in Luke 24. So in chapter one, uh, this is how Luke starts his story. He says, many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled amongst us. Talking about the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And many people have written accounts of the life of Jesus. And he said, they use the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. These reports that they wrote were based on eyewitness accounts. Now he says, now having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write, catch this, an accurate account. So underline that, an accurate account uh, for you, most honorable Theophilus, so that you may be certain, underline that word, certain of the truth of everything you were taught. 
And so it, it appears that as Luke starts his gospel, he starts his account, his two-volume account of the life and the teaching of Jesus and then the movement that he launched, that as he starts his account, he dedicates this, this, uh, this gospel to a man named Theophilus who sounds like a wealthy aristocrat, uh, very likely could have been the patron who's financing this project. But, but Luke says, I've, been, I've done careful investigation and I've written this account and the reason I've written it is to give you accurate information so that you will know the certainty of the things you've been taught. So it sounds like Theophilus is either a recent convert to Christianity or he is a seeker, someone who's considering the claims of Jesus, considering being a follower of Jesus. And so he says, I want you to know the certainty. I've done my accurate research, firsthand witnesses, so you will know the accuracy of what you believe. Now, take that into consideration. When we come to chapter 24, that's exactly what Luke is doing. He is giving us a very straightforward account. This is what happened. Of all the events of that first day, I want to give you three stories, three accounts based on firsthand evidence of what happened that very first day. And he carefully lays out what he will describe in volume two in the book of Acts as the many convincing proofs. So he starts with the story, the account of the missing body. He moves on to the account of the, 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 the angels and the message of the angels. We move on then to Peter running, verifying the tomb is empty. Then we move on to the predictions of Jesus about his life, about his death and resurrection. Then we move on to the prophecies of scripture. And finally, we move on to the coming of Jesus himself and the many convincing proofs that he gives the scars in his hand, touching his body, eating other fish. Luke is on a mission, and what he's doing is he's laying out the evidence for us. This is not a legend. This is not a myth. I have carefully researched this. I have talked to the eyewitnesses. Here is the evidence. I want you to understand you can trust the story about the resurrection of Jesus because this is accurate information. So the first thing he wants us to understand is that the resurrection is real. And that leads to number two. And number two is that the resurrection requires a response. And what Luke does for us in this final chapter is he carefully details the three different responses that people have throughout the day to the news that the, the tomb of Jesus is empty. And so we start the day, everyone's skeptics. We saw that. The women come back. They say that they have this vision that supposedly Jesus is alive, but no one's buying it. All the men there, the, tw the 11, all the other disciples, no one's buying. They all start, their initial response to the message of the resurrection is complete skepticism. However, we see in the afternoon, especially in this account of these two travelers on the road to Emmaus, we see the second response is because of the teaching of Jesus and unpacking the narrative of Scripture, the prophecies of the Old Testament, that they begin to put two and two together. The empty tomb, the vision of angels, the testimony of, uh, of Peter about the empty tomb, and then 
the teaching of Jesus about the prophecies that as Jesus is talking, they move from being a skeptic to being a seeker. And we saw this very carefully. They didn't move from being a skeptic to certainty. They moved from being a skeptic to being a seeker. And we watch this as they come into Emmaus and Jesus wants to move on. He pretends like he's gonna move on. They say, no, 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 something's happening here. They don't know he's Jesus yet. They've not bought in yet. They don't believe the resurrection is true yet, but something is happening. The evidence is beginning to mount and they're sensing a shift inside their heart and they decide we need to pursue this. We don't wanna let him go. And so we watch them move from being skeptics to becoming seekers. But then as they seek, Jesus reveals himself in a very personal and profound way as he breaks the bread. And they move from being seekers to certainty. Now here's what I want to suggest. That this is often the path that we travel, any of us, when we're presented with the message of Jesus, the message of his life, of his death, of his resurrection. We live in a very secular society in many ways. We've all been raised with a very scientific mind view, kind of a closed materialistic mind view, and so worldview. And so when we, when we hear a story about the life, the miracles, the teaching of Jesus, it's very natural for us to just write that off as legend, as myth. That's exactly what the first disciples did. When the women came back and said, we've seen angels, and they said, Jesus is alive and the tomb is empty, the first disciples did not say, oh, he must be raised from the dead. They said, you must be crazy. We don't know what's going on with you. We don't know what you saw, but you're women, you're gullible, you're emotional, we're not buying it, we're realists. People don't rise from the dead. Messiahs don't get killed and Messiahs don't rise. That doesn't happen. We're not buying it. They were solid skeptics at the beginning of the day. And often that's how we begin our spiritual journey. We hear the story about Jesus and we write it off exactly like they did. But over time, things happen. Crises come into our lives that cause us to question if our assumptions about life are accurate. Right now, we're in the midst of this coronavirus crisis. For many people, it's unsettling their worldview. We thought we were in control. We were thought we were so smart. We thought we were so scientifically advanced. And all of a sudden, one little virus is bringing us to our knees. And for many people, it's causing us to, to question our worldview, what we thought we know. Sometimes it's a crisis. Sometimes we meet a follower of Jesus that's a real follower of Jesus, not the fake ones out there. And they're a real follower of Jesus and you watch their life and you see the quality of their life and you see the peace and the confidence and the courage and the humility and the integrity and the love and you're drawn and something begins to happen, the evidence begins to mount, and you find yourself almost imperceptibly moving from being a skeptic to a seeker. And here's the thing, 
When that begins to happen in our lives, it is so important that we do exactly what the two travelers did on the road to Emmaus. They weren't believers yet. They didn't have certainty yet. They didn't know if the resurrection had happened yet. They didn't know who Jesus was yet. But they sensed something was happening. And so they had the intellectual honesty to say, I'm going to seek this out. I'm going to take a next step. And they invited Jesus in to have more conversation, not knowing it was Jesus, but inviting him in. And that was a step that they needed to take. And then Jesus took it from there and moved them from from being uh, seekers to certainty as he revealed himself. It reminds me, there's a passage of scripture in the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, where Jesus is speaking to some people And he says there on your note sheet, he says to these people, he says, here I am. I stand at the door, like at the the door of your life, the door of your group. I stand at the door and I'm knocking. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, then I will come in and I'll eat with that person and they will meet with me. Now, I want you to catch what Jesus is saying. In this passage, Jesus is saying he's the pursuer. He's the one that's pursuing us. Think of it, on the road to Emmaus, these two disciples, they were not pursuing Jesus. He pursued them. But as he pursued them, long before they realized who he was, they sensed something supernatural happening. They said later, our hearts were burning within us as he talked to us. And so they invited him in. And when they invited him in, he took it from there. And he came in and he shared a meal with them and their lives were never the same. And so this is the issue that the resurrection brings for us is that Luke wants us to understand the resurrection, it's not myth, it's not legend, it really happened. And if it happened, it requires a response. And there's three responses that we've seen today. There's the response of the skeptic, the response of the seeker, and then the response of those who become certain about who Jesus is. And the question that each of us has to answer is where on this Easter weekend, where are we? Are we in the place where they started the day, the place of skepticism? Are we in the place of being a seeker? Or have we moved to the place of certainty where we've asked Jesus to come into our life, forgive us of our sins, fill us with his spirit, save a place for us in the next life, and to repent and turn from our old life and come under his leadership. And as we wrap up this message today, I wanna share with you the story of a modern day traveler, a modern day man, a person here who's part of our church here at Rocky Peak, as he shares his story of his spiritual journey, of how he went from being a skeptic to a seeker 
to a place of certainty. Let's turn our attention to the screens. My name is Andre van Komenay. I've been married to Kathy for 24 years. And we have two daughters. We have a wonderful family life. I'm a physical therapist for the last 35 years. Going to work every day with a smile. I'm really enjoying it. I was born in Amsterdam in the Netherlands in 1961. My parents were the World War II generation. They were very loving parents. We went to church every week. It never you know, spoke to me at all, you know, and, and I remember any time I asked a question about God, there were no answers. At around age 12, sports in school became more important than church, and I was relatively talented in sports. I competed for the Dutch national track and field team. Because I wanted to try to the next level to become an Olympic athlete, my body just couldn't handle it. And was injured time after time. And so the one person that really was helping me was a physical therapist. He was an inspiration for me because he really enjoyed every person that he got in contact with. So seven years later, I became a physical therapist. Through that time, I never went to church. There was no connection with God. In fact, it made much more sense to me that there was no God. That made me an atheist. It was not an educated atheist. I was not really studying at all. It was, you know, God was just not important in my life. I was working as a physical therapist then, and my patient was a stuntman. And at one point, I had to go to northern Spain for a training camp. He said, oh, that's great because I have to go to southern Spain. He said, well, why don't you come and visit me? So that's what I did. So he picked me up, brought me to the set in Spain. He introduced me to the owners of Emblem Entertainment. You know, it was Frank Marshall, Kathleen Kennedy, and Steven Spielberg. I got invited to be the physical therapist for Harrison Ford and Sean Connery on the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. It was really cool. One of the locations was LA, and I started to work at UCLA Sports Rehabilitation Center. I started to date a Jewish girl. After a year of dating, we were thinking about maybe getting married. But the only way possible was if I would become Jewish. And so she gave me a tape from Dennis Prager. He's a Jewish theologian, philosopher, radio host. He captured my attention because he said, let me share with you why there's much more likely a God than there's not. After listening to this tape, if I was intellectually honest, then I had to admit that there was much more likely a God than there was not. And that blew my mind. I could not believe that I went from being an atheist to agnostic to a theist. And here I was, 30 years old, and having to change my mind based on reason and logic alone. It changed my whole paradigm of how to look at life. Because the parents of my girlfriend made an ultimatum to either choose me or being Jewish. So I decided to stop the relationship. About half a year later, I met a girl, Kathy. We started to date. She asked me if I wanted to go to church with her because Christ was important to her. And I thought, you know what, you look so beautiful. I will go to church with you, why not? And so we arrived here at Rocky Peak and I saw a lot of people and it was upbeat music. You know, that was totally different than what I expected. And then when the pastor came up and he spoke normal language, that really intrigued me. And so from that moment on, we just went every week. 
you know, the more I learned, the more questions I got. Questions like, if there's so much evil, you know, how can there be a God? Who made God? How can you believe in, in, a, in a man born from a virgin? And every time I got good answers, at least answers that fit the picture. We were invited by a couple to a dinner that was Billy and Danielle. At the end of the evening, Danielle gave me a Bible. She said, Andre, here's a Bible. It's easy to read. Once you start reading it, start with the book of John. So I received it. Did I read it? No. About half a year later, Billy and Danielle asked us to go out and, and have dinner together. And so we did. You know, the moment we sat down, they looked at me and they said, so Andre, uh, how'd you walk with God? And I said, uh, what walk? And then immediately they focused in on Kathy. And I said, Kathy, what are you doing? Still dating Andre. You know we love him, we pray for him, but he's not changing. You're still dating a non-believer. She defended me, kind of like, no, he is growing. He asked the right questions. They left and Kathy and I were together and I said, I think we need to break up. I said, I, I'm pulling you away from your God, and ultimately you will be unhappy. It was hard for both of us. You know, I was so frustrated. I was not only sad, I was mad. I love two people, and both times I have to break up because of this God thing. I went to bed, couldn't sleep, and I thought, you know what, I remember Danielle gave me that book. So I started getting the Bible, and I started to read at John. At one point it says, you're either for me or against me. That it was Christ making a statement. And I knew one thing, I was definitely not against him. And I tried to sleep, I, I couldn't, I couldn't sleep. I started to pray. God, I, I don't know exactly who you are. I said, based on what I read, I trust Christ, but please help me in my belief. It was very simple. The next morning I woke up, went to the beach, rollerbladed, that's what my normal routine was. In the evening I decided to call Kathy and I thought, okay, I made a decision that is very important to her and could be important for our relationship if she still wanted to continue. I remember sitting in the, in the couch in my one bedroom apartment in Santa Monica and I pick up the phone to tell her the good news. In the middle of the conversation I see this figure appearing in the middle of the room and walking up to me in a white robe. I cannot see the face. So I tell Kathy, I said, hold on a second. And this person comes to me and puts his hands like this and puts it right on top of my head and says, everything will be okay and disappears. <laughs> I'm talking to Kathy. Uh, Kath, let me tell you what just happened. It was pretty amazing, of course, and I think God just met me and said, relax, your faith is a genuine faith. I still have questions. Do I understand God completely? Absolutely not. But do I understand God more and more? And the answer is yes. That is the beauty and it's a growing experience. One of the things that I've learned through this growth process is that the most important aspect of life is to have a personal relationship with God. And from there, I get God's perspective and know what is important in life right now. What I'm excited about, not only what has happened, but what is going to happen also in the future. Let's pray together. 
Well, our eyes are closed and our, our heads are bowed. Wherever you're at, wherever you're watching this, maybe you're sitting at a kitchen table, maybe you're in your living room in a bedroom, maybe you're watching a large screen TV, maybe you're on a computer or even a, your phone. But wherever you're at today, I'd ask you just to close your eyes and let's just spend some time together reflecting on what we've learned today. And the question I'd ask you is that if you're honest with yourself, where are you today? Which of those three responses to the resurrection would best describe you today? Would you see yourself as a, a skeptic? Would you see yourself as a seeker? Or would you see yourself as someone who has come to a place of certainty? You've entered into a relationship with the risen Jesus in your life. You've experienced his presence, his power, his forgiveness, the work of his spirit, his transforming work in your power. Which are you today? And I, I wanna talk to those of you first that you'd, you'd self-identify as a skeptic. And I wanna say, if that's where you're at, I. I can just so much relate that that's just sort of my natural wiring to be a skeptic. And I, and I get it in the world we live in. It's not a world that is conducive to faith. And yet the evidence is mounting, is it not? And perhaps today, even as we've been walking through this first day of the resurrection, that perhaps for some of you watching right now that you've sensed some movement you might describe yourself as a skeptic, and yet, and yet you're sensing the evidence is mounting, and you're feeling within you a new openness. You're not ready to believe in the resurrection. You're not ready to follow Jesus, but you also don't want him to go. You, you, you're at that place where those two travelers, where you want to invite him in to learn more. And if that's you, I just want to challenge you to listen to your heart and your instincts and don't miss this opportunity. I want to encourage you to have the intellectual honesty just to pray a very simple prayer in this time of worship we're entering into. And all that prayer would be is that, is that Jesus, if you're real, if the story of your resurrection is true, and if you truly are alive today, would you come into my life and reveal yourself to me like you did to those men during dinner? If it's really you knocking, I want to open the door and invite you to come in. And you know, there's no risk in this. I mean, if the, if the story is false, if it's not true, nothing's going to happen. You've not, you've not lost anything. But if Jesus is alive and if it's true, this will be perhaps the most important prayer you ever pray. And then I want to talk to those of you that would self-describe yourself as seekers. That whether you entered this service today as a seeker or maybe you started as a skeptic, but you're a seeker right now. But somehow during this service, 
that what has happened in your life is what happened to those two travelers. That as you've been seeking Jesus, that during this service, he's revealed himself to you. And you've found that you're no longer just a seeker. You've moved to a place of conviction. You, you believe that Jesus, the resurrection happened and you believe he's alive. And for you, you want to invite him into your life for good. You want to repent of your sin and rebellion. You want to bow the knee to your true king. You want to ask for his forgiveness. You want to ask for the gift of his spirit to empower you to change, to be the person you're created to be. You want to ask Jesus to give you his new resurrection life for this life and the next life. And if that's you, I want to lead you in a very simple prayer right now. You can pray along. If you're by yourself, you can pray it out loud. You can pray it under your breath. You can pray it in your heart or mind. But if you're sincere, I believe Jesus will hear. And just pray with me, dear Jesus, I believe in you. And I open the door of my life and I ask you to come into my life. I ask you to forgive me for my sin and rebellion. I ask you to teach me how to follow you. I ask you to give me the gift of your spirit to teach me and to guide me and empower me to live a new life. And I ask you to save a spot in the next life for me. And while our heads are still bowed and our eyes are still closed, I want to, first of all, if you just prayed that prayer, welcome you to the kingdom. But secondly, I would love to send you a letter this week just with some kind of simple tips to help you grow in your new relationship with Jesus. And so if you made that decision today, you can just send me an email. Uh, it's very simple, just Michael at rockypeak.org and just share with me, Michael, I gave my life to Jesus or I asked Jesus in my life and then we will respond by emailing you back. But here's some first steps in your new relationship. And so Lord, as we come today on this Easter weekend, as we gather all from around the world, from England and from Hong Kong and from Hawaii and from here locally. We're separated over space, but not separated by your spirit. And we pray now as we enter into your presence and we worship you for your life, your death, and your resurrection. We pray that you would meet us now as we enter into your presence together. We pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.